Hi there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. Welcome, nerdlings, to the season three premiere of Crime Time Nerds. We also happen to be celebrating our second annual Halloweenaganza, which I'm super pumped about. And so, yeah, bringing it in. So, Ash and I are going to keep it pretty chill tonight. You know, we're not going to talk true crime necessarily at all, actually, at all. Don't even, I'm so sorry. There's no, <laughs> there's no true crime, guys. So, instead, we actually found a couple of pretty fun, creepy, interesting, weird tales from Shocker, the good old Green Mountain State. Uh, we just thought these would be some fun ones to share with you all. They're a little longer, uh, ones than maybe the ones we did last year. So these ones have a little bit more depth to them. Yeah. And if you nerdlings have been following along, you know that Halloween happens to be Nat and I's favorite holiday. Yeah, (laughs) I'm so pumped. (laughs) And yes, I'm calling it a holiday because it deserves to be called holiday. Yes. Like if I have to pick between Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Halloween, I mean, I really like turkey, but I'm pretty sure, and I really like <laughs> Gremlins, but I think it's going to be Halloween for the win. Technically speaking, Gremlins is also my favorite Halloween movie, too. See, well, that's that's like me. I'm actually, no, that's not. <laughs> I love, <laughs> ha- um, oh my gosh, Halloween is my favorite, and then it goes Thanksgiving for me, so I was like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, The Nightmare Before Christmas, you can watch it for Halloween and Christmas, but Christmas isn't my favorite holiday, so. Oh, uh, yeah, I do like, that's like my my jam, though, is to do Nightmare. I, I love me some Nightmare. Oh, yeah. it's the It does dual duty, man. It does dual duty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so as you can tell, nerdlings, we're a little wound up. It's kind of late at night, but the fun has just begun. So I'm going to lead off tonight's Halloweenaganza with a tale that should chill everyone's bones, literally and figuratively. And I am super pumped to tell you all this creepy, creepy tale. So to start off with, we're going to talk about some freezing cold stories from uh, the old time days. I'm going to lead off with a story about a spring that also had some otherworldly powers and maybe a curse or two attached with it. And then Ash is going to take us home with a tale about a possible animal gone rogue. Or, realistically, it might even just be Sasquatch. Yes. That's all you want <laughs> in life is Sasquatch. <laughs> yes, so much fun. <laughs> awesome. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to grab your candles and a friend's hand. Enjoy Nat and I around the campfire as we tell you some old legends from our mountain home. So the best way to share this story is to pretty much just let the account of the creepy nature of this speak for itself. So back in 1887, a local paper in Vermont known as the Times Argus had a local person submit what was a strange tale from a diary they had found the diary belonging to one of their family members. And that account has led to the local legend of the frozen old people of Vermont. The tale was submitted to the Times Argus under a pseudonym, 
which the only name given was in fact the initials A.M. And the diary entry came from A.M.'s uncle, who was named William. Rather than paraphrase the story, I was actually able to track down the original article, which was published in the Argus back in 1887, with my handy-dandy newspapers.com subscription, which, as a side note, I'm just going to throw it out there. They'd make a fantastic sponsor, which they're not currently, but it'd be awesome. Uh, Hint, 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 hint. Uh, So I think some tales are pretty much just better coming from the original source. So I'm going to read the actual account uh, that was published in the Times Argus back in 1887. So the tale was submitted under the title, A Strange Tale, and it was published both in the December 21st, 1887 Times Argus newspaper, as well as for the Patriot. In case anyone wants to go and track down the story themselves, I'll also put a link to the newspapers.com article and also to the link from the website where I originally found out about the story to begin with. Uh, They had a pretty decent piece of the uh, original story in there as well, a good chunk of it, so you can also read it there. So I am going to read this tale verbatim, and there is some terminology that is used that Ideally, we wouldn't even be using nowadays, but uh, we just want to throw it out there. It's a little bit rude or problematic, in my opinion. Um, I am going to say it, but it is not Ash or I's preferred terms by any sort of means. It's just not, not, none of us really like to use these type of terms nowadays. But purely just because that's the story that it was written in back in 1887, I'm going to kind of keep it in line. Uh, So with that, let's get into it. I am an old man now and have seen some strange sights in the course of a roving life in foreign lands as well as in this country, but none so strange as one I found recorded in an old diary kept by my uncle William that came into my possession a few years ago at his decease. The events described took place in a mountain town some 20 miles from Montpelier, the capital of Vermont. I had been to the place on the mountain and seen the old log house where the events I found recorded in the diary took place, and seen and talked with an old man who vouched for the truth of the story, and that his father was one of the parties operated on. The accounts run in this wise. January 7th. I went on the mountain today and witnessed what to me was a horrible sight. It seems that the dwellers there who are unable, either from age or other reasons, to contribute to the support of their families, are disposed of in the winter months in a manner that will shock the one who reads this diary, unless that person lives in that vicinity. I will describe what I saw. Six persons, four men and two women, one of the men a cripple about 30 years old, the other five past the age of usefulness, lay on the earthly floor of the cabin, drugged into insensibility, while members of their families were gathered about them in apparent indifference. In a short time, the unconscious bodies were inspected by several old people who said, quote, They are ready. They were then stripped of all their clothing except a single garment. Then the bodies were carried outside and laid on logs exposed to the bitter cold mountain air the operation having been delayed several days for suitable weather. It was night when the bodies were carried out, and the full moon, 
occasionally obscured by flying clouds, shone on their upturned, ghastly faces, and a horrible fascination kept me by the bodies as long as I could endure the severe cold. Soon the noses, ears, and fingers began to turn white. Then the limbs and faces assumed a tallowy look. I could stand the cold no longer and went inside, where I found the friends in cheerful conversation. In about an hour, I went out and looked at the bodies. They were fast freezing. Again, I went inside, where the men were smoking their clay pipes, but silence had fallen on them. Perhaps they were thinking of the time when their turn would come to be cared for in the same way. One by one, they at last lay down on the floor and went to sleep. It seemed a horrible nightmare to me, and I could not think of sleep. I could not shut out the sight of those freezing bodies outside, neither could I bear to be in darkness. But I piled on the wood in the cavernous fireplace and seated on a shingle block past the dreary night, terror-stricken by the horrible sights I had witnessed. January 8th. Day came at length, but did not dissipate the terror that filled me. The frozen bodies became visible, white as the snow that lay in huge drifts about them. The women gathered about the fire and soon commenced preparing breakfast. The men awoke and conversation again commencing, affairs assumed a more cheerful aspect. After breakfast, the men lighted their pipes and some of them took a yoke of oxen and went off toward the forest, while others proceeded to nail together boards, making a box about 10 feet long and half as high and wide. When this was completed, they placed about two feet of straw on the bottom. Then they laid three of the frozen bodies on the straw. Then the faces and upper part of the bodies were covered with a cloth. Then more straw was put in the box, and then the other three straw. Boards were then placed on the top to protect the bodies from being injured by carnivorous animals that make their home on these mountains. The ox team returned with a huge load of spruce and hemlock boughs. Here the mountaineers unloaded and placed on a steep ledge the spruce and boughs. They came to the house and loaded the box containing the bodies of the spruce and drew it to the ledge. It was left to be covered up by snow, which I was told would lay in drifts 20 feet deep over this rude tomb. We shall want our men to plant our corn next sprint, said a youngish looking woman, the wife of one of the frozen men. And if you want to see them resuscitated, you come here about the 10th of next May. With this agreement, I left the mountaineers living and frozen to their fate and returned to my home in Boston, where it was weeks before I was fairly myself, as my thoughts would return to that mountain with its awful sepulture. Turning the leaves of the old diary to the date of May 10th, the following entry was found. May 10th. I arrived here at 10 a.m. after riding about four hours over muddy, unsettled roads. The weather is warm and pleasant. Most of the snow is gone, except here and there drifts in the fence or corners and hollows. But nature is not yet dressed in green. I found the same parties here that I left last January, ready to disinter the bodies of their friends. I had no expectations of finding any life there but a feeling that I could not resist impelled me to come and see. We repaired at once to the well-remembered spot at the ledge. The snow had melted from the top of the brush, but still lay deep around the bottom of the pile. The men commenced work at once, some shoveling away the snow and others tearing away the brush. Soon the box was visible. The cover was taken off, 
the layers of straw removed, and the bodies, frozen and apparently lifeless, lifted out and laid on the snow. Large troughs made out of hemlock logs were placed nearby, filled with tepid water, into which the bodies were separately placed with the head slightly raised. Boiling water was then poured into the trough from kettles hung on poles nearby, until the water in the trough was as hot as I could hold my hand in. Hemlock boughs had been put in the boiling water in such quantities that they had given the water the color of wine. After lying in this bath about an hour, color began to return to the bodies, when all hands began rubbing and chafing them. This continued about another hour, when a slight twitching of the muscles of the face and limbs followed by audible gasp showed that life was not quenched and that the vitality was returning. Spirits were then given in small quantities and allowed to trickle down their throats. Soon they could swallow and more was given them when their eyes opened and they began to talk and finally sat up in their bathtubs. They were then taken out and assisted to the house where after a hearty dinner they seemed as well as ever and in no wise injured but rather refreshed by their long sleep of four months. Truly, truth is stranger than fiction. Ah! Yeah. Wow. It's pretty pretty could crazy. You, could you Yeah, could you imagine taking a long slumber of four months in the cold winter and then just getting woken up yeah. to some really, really awful, like, probably vodka spirit or moonshine? <laughs> I was thinking moonshine. It's like up in the mountains in the middle of winter. It's You're moonshine. Like, Man, this shit wakes you up from the dead. <laughs> literally I mean literally all I could think was like I don't know it made me think of like zombies it had that like I don't know like the like traditional zombie stories it, it felt like that yeah. like the, the old voodoo zombie stories yeah huh I have never heard of that before that's that's pretty crazy I actually hadn't heard of this one either I just kind of came across it in some research and there was this really cool website uh, and I will link it in the um, in the uh, show notes for people but it was really cool and it had a bunch of the just different tales and weird stories from Vermont over the years, so it was pretty cool. So I found it this this tale there, and I went down a rabbit hole because it was way too. I had to, of course, then go validate the this article that was referenced. Yeah. And luckily, the the website had actually put the date and the paper that it was in, so it was actually it took me about like five minutes to find the story and actually validate that this was actually published in the Argus in 1887. Whether or not the story is true is a very different thing, but... (laughs) Well, it's so funny because looking nowadays, Mm -hmm. you see all these wives' tales. Yeah. And it's just, it's just like, where did this, these people come up with this stuff? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, was this actually... (laughs) Was it actually something that happened that sparked this, like, term or this, like, story? How... If you've never even heard of this stuff before, how does it just come about in your mind, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I know I know way back, uh, I think it was wheat that would ferment. It kind of, like, messed with your brain a little bit. It was, like, a hallucinogenic. Oh, I didn't know that. It was some kind of bread. There was some kind of, like, yeast in the bread or whatnot, and it would kind of just, like, people would kind of go a little nutty. <laughs> uh- <laughs> Well, there's, like, stories of, like, mushrooms and spores causing that kind of behavior, too, so. Yeah, I'm so not I don't know. That's maybe too much moonshine, you know? Maybe too much moonshine <laughs> might be the answer. I, I think part of me when I was reading this, um, the one thing I could definitely keep seeing. So I write fiction, horror fiction for fun. 
And reading this definitely made me think of it. It had a very like fiction writing style to it, especially from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. There was just a flair there that made me think maybe somebody's like fictional story that they wanted published and passed it as as real. I, I this yeah. is purely speculation, but. One thing it definitely reminded me of, though, was Shirley Jackson's Lottery, which is, like, one of my all-time favorite stories. I'm obsessed with this story. But, um, the re- I don't know, it just kind of, like, caught my attention. So in Jackson's story, of course, it's a small town, and they all start sacrificing one another. You know, they, they do a lottery every year to um, basically appease the crops kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so this story just kind of had this, like, very big lottery feel to it. One of the kind of interesting things to note is that Shirley Jackson actually lived in Vermont for a long time. She'd moved here with her husband down to Bennington uh, in the 1940s. And she actually published the story of the lottery in 1949. And it was published. She was living in Vermont when that story was published huh. and written. So I kind of wondered if maybe like this legend, maybe she had heard this legend and maybe it sparked an idea. I don't know. It was just a, a thought. I'd be curious if anyone actually knows if that was the case or not. But when I, I read this story, it really like all I kept thinking was, "Wow, this reminds me of the lottery." So I went and googled some information, and and I knew she had been, she had lived in Vermont. I just didn't know what years, and and it did. It was the 1940s, so huh. it wasn't too far out from when this was published. Yeah, that's so. pretty cool. Yeah, I thought it was kind of neat. You're welcome. Random, yeah. random, random writer facts from that. <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's get to the next one so now that we've taken a look at possibly the oldest case of cryogenics throughout time it's definitely time for us to dive into yet another creepy tale from the legends of these darkened green mountains (laughs) not over the top or anything (laughs) that was such (laughs) that was such like a creepy laugh that you just it's it's my halloween spooky laugh just for you it it went with it went I, I it. felt very confident with its with its momentum there. You're welcome. <laughs> so the next tale we're going to tell is an old one as well. And it actually dates back to when much of Vermont was literally still wilderness and unsettled. Which, okay, yeah, not much has changed since. But this is even more rural than before. Or than now. So we're going to dive into the cursed Brunswick Vermont Springs. And this is actually another one I wasn't familiar with, and now I really want to go here. So that's going to be a road trip for us. <laughs> oh, jeez. But, yeah, you're, yeah you're, we're going on an adventure. So there is an area of Vermont that most of us natives like to pretty much refer to as the Northeast Kingdom. Vermont's rural, but, like, the Northeast Kingdom literally makes the rest of us look super urban. It's this area where forests are still dense. You know, neighbors are super spread out. There's probably more animals than people throughout the whole area. It's it's super beautiful, too. It's it's very, um, what's the word for it? Just very relaxing if you are a nature fan. It's beautiful up there. And it's the northeasternmost piece of Vermont, and it clings to the bottom of Canada. Are it's also us, some of the- us locals, oh, I was going to I was gonna say, oh, us go locals it. call it the N.E.K., <laughs> the any yeah we do how do you say it ash do it again the, the n-e-k the n-e-k i can't ever do it because i'm not originally from here and i don't do a, i have a vermont accent but not to the level that that you mimic it or that you have it yours is a beautiful glorious thing i just had to i just had to sneak that in there real quick the, the n-e-k the n-e-k <laughs> Yeah, so, sounds. It's since it is the bottom of Canada, it, it does sound very Canadian. 
it does. Now that I think about it, it's probably a little bit of a throwback to our Canadian roots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is, like I was saying, this is actually some of the most beautiful landscape you're going to see in the state. It's just stunning up there. And it also happens to be home to its own fair share of traditional New England folklore and creepy tales. So it's really fitting for a place of this wildness to just have its own myths and legends as Oftentimes, there are areas like these that are there just to kind of almost remind us of just how fragile and human we all can be. So, in the Northeast Kingdom, there lies a town that's called Brunswick. And Brunswick falls along the infamous Connecticut River, which, of course, you've heard us mention in this show numerous, numerous times. And within the town of Brunswick lies a spring that inevitably comes off of that very same river, and it is rumored that at one point in history, these springs had been touted by the very acclaimed Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> as I loved Ripley's Believe It or Not as a child, just as a side note. You're, it was like, oh, I loved this. I thought it was the coolest thing. So I'm going with acclaimed. Um, so Ripley's actually touted this as the, quote, eighth wonder of the world. And this large spring holds within it six different springs that supposedly each contain a wildly different mineral composite than the other springs. So these six springs lie very close together and they all bubble forth from one single knoll. And according to myth and legends of this area, each of the six springs is composed of independent minerals such as arsenic, iron, calcium, magnesium, bromide, and sulfur. Interesting combinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, arsenic being the one that I'm probably the most concerned about. I'd really like <laughs> yeah. to know which specific spring that one is. Um, just, a, just an aside. So as legend has it, the local Native American tribe of that region, which is known as the Abnaki, had figured out that a perfect combination of these six mineral composites would in fact create the cure-all of all elixirs. Because the spring held each of these minerals, when combined, the spring actually had magical properties that could cure any ailment, heal any wound, and bring folks back from the brink of death. The Abnaki tribe was very aware of the spring and its magical properties, so in 1748, when the tribe discovered a severely injured British soldier in the area, they instinctively knew to take him to the springs in order to try and save the soldier's life. The soldier's arm had been badly injured, and the only solution would be to amputate that arm. Except the soldier never needed to have an amputation. The Abnaki managed to save the soldier's arm by bringing him to the springs. And supposedly, after bathing the injured appendage in the healing waters of the spring, feeling began to return to the soldier's arm and hand. And so the soldier was able to survive his injury and retain his once injured arm without having to have an amputation in order to save his life. Of course, as is the nature with good deeds and tales of morality, the kindness of the Abnaki was abused. After the war, that very same soldier returned to the spring. He had a plan that if he took the water and sold it to people as a cure-all elixir, that he could very well become wealthy off the healing properties of the spring. These are all recipes for disaster. Mm -hmm. And so when the local Native American tribe became aware of the soldier's ill intent towards what they perceived as nature's gift, a dispute broke out between the tribe and the selfish soldier. Word began to spread among the non-Native Americans within the region of the Magical Spring. 
folks began to flock to the springs in droves, creating tensions among the native tribe and those who would take from the springs' healing properties. It is said that during this dispute, like pretty much all fights, it escalated to the point where innocent people would get hurt. In this case, it was two innocent members within the tribe who would pay the cost of selfishness with their own lives. With the knowledge that this man's greediness had cost the lives of two innocents, it is said that the mother of one of the victims was a great and powerful sorceress. She determined that a curse would be needed to protect all people from greediness and profiteering off the springs. And so the curse goes as such, quote, Any use of the waters of the great spirit for profit will never prosper, unquote. And so the curse was initiated. As the years passed, the spring and its curse began to become as intrinsic to the backdrop of the Northeast Kingdom, or NEK if you're Ash, <laughs> as, <laughs> as the wilderness was. In the late 1790s, a boarding house would be built nearby to the magic waters of the spring. It was free of charge, of course, to stay there. See, they were smart. Stay away from the curse by making it free. <laughs> and so... Folks would drift in from all over New England to sample a piece of the healing waters. They'd stay at the boarding house. No harm, no foul. And yet, there was a nervousness that surrounded the spring as well. While word of the healing waters had spread, word of the curse had also been whispered from ear to ear. In the mid-1800s, the lands had begun to be taken from the Abnaki Native Americans, giving way to settlers who had begun to create townships all along the waters of northern Vermont. And really, all across the United States. It wasn't just Vermont that had this happen. So in 1860, it would bring about Charles Bailey, who would be the first person to dare try and build an establishment directly on the property where the curse was said to have been placed. Bailey built a hotel right near the springs. Not long after the hotel's completion, Bailey decided to sell the hotel to a local dentist by the name of D.C. Rowell. Raoul would change the name of the hotel to be the Brunswick Springs House. In 1894, the Brunswick Springs House mysteriously burned to the ground. Raoul then decided he just needed to build the hotel in a different spot, and so he moved the hotel up to the bluff nearby to the springs. He then named this hotel the Pinecrest Lodge. He would then pass away in 1910, and not long after the Pinecrest Lodge would collapse into the river that ran below it, fulfilling yet another piece of the curse. Yet again, no one would profit from that location. The property would once more go up for sale, including the springs within the sale price. John Hutchins decided to try his luck with this magical piece of land as he wanted to try and capitalize off of the spring's supposedly healing properties. Hutchins had his eyes set on building a grand resort along the natural spring. He knew that marketing the spring's magical water, it would set him apart from all of his competition, and so he began to build a grand resort on the property. On September 19, 1929, that resort burned down, never having even made it to its grand opening night. Not to be deterred by this fiery setback, Hutchins decided to spin the wheels of fate and rebuild the resort once again. This time, he planned to go even grander than previous. During the winter months of 1929, the new resort was built, and it was the talk of the area. The hotel had already booked up for its planned grand opening weekend back in June. On May 15, 1930, 
a night watchman spotted smoke billowing out of the hotel's storage room. Unfortunately, it was too late for Hutchins Hotel. The hotel would be consumed in flames that very night. Hutchins would now have suffered the loss of not just one hotel, but two. Being a savvy businessman and somewhat stubborn, Hutchins decided to try one last time to build yet another hotel in that location. He's learned nothing. (laughs) In 1931, the hotel was completed, and it was even grander than the previous two. Unfortunately for Hutchins, the curse wasn't yet finished with him. On April 23, 1931, this third hotel that Hutchins had built on the property suffered yet another fiery fate. It is unknown what caused this fire, but it too consumed the entirety of that hotel. Seemingly having learned his lesson finally, took three times, but he did, Hutchins did not choose to build any further hotels on that property, probably for the best. It also seems that most folks have taken heed of the curse in the years since the consecutive fires, and in subsequent years, no other soul has dared attempt to build or profit off of the waters that possibly hold a little bit of magic within their depths. Ooh! Ooh. <laughs> I, I really like that story. I just, I, it's an interesting one. Yeah. I don't actually believe that these are magical springs, but I think that's a pretty cool idea. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, I'm a water baby. I love water. <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that there is a slight possibility that these are magic springs is just amazing. And you never know. You never know. There's always the tales of the elixir of life and all of that. So who knows? Maybe this is the magical, uh, magical uh what do you call it um compounds needed to create that yeah well we should go there i think it'd be a really beautiful spot to just visit anyway yeah even just to go see we'll take some pictures when we go um it's a little cold here right now so probably (laughs) not right now maybe this spring we'll go yeah we'll post them (laughs) definitely all right so now it's my turn to tell our last but definitely not least tale of the evening this one hails from the same area that our previous story does as it takes place in the woods of Brunswick, up in the Northeast Kingdom, also known to me as the N.E.K. (laughs) The (laughs) N.E.K. Also, what a cool, like, name, Northeast Kingdom. It just sounds so, it sounds pretty, like, majestic. It it actually does. I had never really thought of it like that, but, you know, because it's just a place that we all know. But when you're actually, like, looking at it over and over again, you're like, huh, you know what? That is a really good name. It just sounds yeah. like, I don't know, a little far away. Like kingdom is in the name. Like how how cool. It's kingdom. It's the kingdom <laughs> part of it that just makes it sound like like a little Game of Thronesy. I kind of yeah, like it. Yeah, yeah, yep. So let's head right back into the woods of the Northeast Kingdom during the 1700s. Not only was this area home to a magical healing well, but it was also home to a creature that made a habit of being a complete nuisance to those who had the misfortune of encountering it. Nat, what are you doing in the woods? What? What? <laughs> what? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not that bad. Come on. I am kind of a nuisance. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, if there's one of us hanging in the woods being a brat, it would probably be me. Except I'm too big of a wuss to go and actually hang out in the woods by myself because that would entail being in the dark. No, it would be my it would be my brother. It would be my brother. Oh, 100% it would be your brother. I just 100%. had I just had to make that little <laughs> You just, you're like, I just had to throw this in there. <laughs> okay. 
it's fine. It's fair. Mm. <laughs> All right. Any cave. Any cave. <laughs> so as we said earlier, this area is remote even by today's standards. It's easy to lose oneself in the wilderness that surrounds the area. It wasn't uncommon for settlers and native tribes of the area to deal with animals in various forms and shapes at this time. There are many predators that hid among the dense foliage of the Northeast Kingdom. There were snakes, coyotes, and foxes. But none of these predators was more vexing than the creature known as slippery skin. Slippery skin was a supposed creature known both to the settlers and to the native tribes of the area. The Abnaki referred to the creature as Wejuk, which means wet skin, and the settlers had come to call the creature slippery skin. The names meant the same. This creature was an absolute genius at evading the traps set for him by the settlers and by the tribes people alike. The creature terrorized the people within the Northeast Kingdom region. It would harass the cows, it would throw wood piles into complete disarray, it would terrorize the local sheep flocks and throw stones into the hayfields. It was even said that slippery skin would hang out up in the trees and would rain down pine cones and nuts onto the heads of unsuspecting travelers below. The people of the area were terrorized by the creature, who was thought to possibly be a bear that was very smart and wily. Slippery Skin was said to hate humans, and so in his hatred, he made it his life's goal to harass and frustrate any human he came across, as he was a, quote, mean creature. It is unknown how old Slippery Skin actually was, as tales of his harassment were still occurring even into the 1800s. Considering the first stories of the creature and his rampage began in the 1750s, he would be quite an old creature by this point in time. Stories of slippery skin abounded, however. It is said that the creature ran on his hind legs chasing folks, and that it never ran on all fours. The creature was said to have been huge. He is often described as a giant bear. It is of note that there are black bears that are native to Vermont. It was said that no matter what, hunters could never shoot the creature, because as soon as they had him in their sights, he would vanish into the forest as if he'd never been there to begin with. Over time, the stories of Slippery Skin dissipated, however, and the bear creature hasn't been seen since. But perhaps he is just biding his time, waiting for the right time to come back and harass the folks that dared to settle near his habitat. In recent years, there has been a plethora of potential Bigfoot sightings all throughout the state of Vermont. Perhaps what the settlers and native peoples were seeing was not a giant bear running on hind legs, But perhaps it was the elusive Bigfoot, annoyed and holding a grudge against the citizens of the Northeast Kingdom. Of course, you're going to end with it being Bigfoot. (laughs) Of course. There's got to be. Got to be. I mean, he's just on his hind legs. It could be. It could be Bigfoot. I'll give you this one. (laughs) And he he liked to harass people. It wasn't even like typical bear things it was like i'm just gonna throw stuff at you (laughs) yeah i don't know i don't know how much bears can throw but i don't know i kind of love slippery skin i'm not gonna lie Mm -hmm. like this is my favorite favorite creature that we have come across in a long time yeah i just love its attitude (laughs) i know he's like you're gonna come on my land 
I'm just gonna knock your wood piles over that you just stacked forever, which take forever and they're super heavy and it you break you break a sweat. <laughs> Not that you're salty at all. <laughs> at all. <laughs> See, yeah. And you have to do it in the in the creature voice, of course, Ash. Like Oh yeah. Also, yeah. I'm pretty mad though that they're harassing the cows because cows are one of my favorite animals. So Oh, I do like cows a lot and sheep and yeah, I'm kind of an animal. Like the the sweet cuddly animals I'm all about. Yeah. I think cows are beautiful. Yeah, cows are so sweet. They're so cute. Sweet little moose. So your Bigfoot is kind of a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Which That's honestly where we're at. Honestly, if you talk to my partner, he'd be like, Wow, yeah, this yeah. sounds just like you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah, yeah. But all but also uh, it's kind of funny because we have a little campfire. Yeah. That we sit out in the in the on the property and um every time we have a campfire there's this like squirrel in the tree that gets so pissed off that we're there. It's either a squirrel or a chipmunk and they just constantly are tossing pine cones and acorns at us and he does this like little chittering noise. This it's literally it's slippery skin reincarnated from bear form to chipmunk angry small chipmunk form. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm going with. But it's so funny cuz when I saw that I was like, wow, that that sounds I wonder I wonder if it was a mix of things like the cows mm. just got spooked by a coyote or something. Um, Could be, yeah. One neighbor didn't like the other neighbor, so the neighbor's like, I'm going to go right. use my power and yeah. pu- push over their wood pile. <laughs> that feels very human in its responses to what this is doing to annoy people. Yeah, and then the whole like <laughs> acorns and pine cones, it's totally angry squirrels. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, this feels petty. This is like, if this is a, if this is a spooky supernatural creature, it is a really really petty supernatural creature. (laughs) Like, I'm supernatural and I hate all of you and I will throw acorns at you. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. I mean, it's it's not funny in the moment. I would be absolutely petrified. Um, Oh, sure. I feel like I talk this big game about, like, not being super scared. But I actually do get kind of scared. But my my one thing, though, is when my partner's working and I'm home alone and it's at at night. Yeah. No, sometimes people, like, hear a noise and they'll be like, oh, my God, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to say anything. Literally every night for me, but yes. If I hear, like, a noise and it freaks me out, I'm like, well, I don't want them to think I'm scared. So there's been times where I've opened the door. I'm like, I'm just going to do oh, it. No. I open the door. I'm nope. like, hey, who's out there? I see you. <laughs> Get out of here. It's, and I'll. it just makes me feel better. But if huh. that's, that's how I'm going to get taken away. Yeah, I, I definitely think you're risking something here. Does this work is what I want to know. <laughs> well, ha- I'm sure almost every time it's just an animal or something (laughs) (laughs) but for that animal you're really scary (laughs) but yeah i just i gotta act a little tougher than the person outside if someone because because could you imagine if someone's just walking outside your house and you're like yeah i'm gonna scare these people they're never gonna see it coming and all of a sudden you see this batshit crazy (laughs) lady open the door like hey (laughs) and then they're like she's not worth the trouble I've got 911 on the other line. Yeah. <laughs> See, no, I'm a wuss. So I hear that shit. I'm like, it, it's all yours. You take it. I don't care. Yeah. It's all up for grabs. I can't. Nope. Yeah. I, I don't do weird noises. Not at all. Yeah. Weird noises I can handle. It's like the uh, paranormal stuff that really freaks me out. 
Um, yeah, no, absolutely not to either of those. I'm like, no, I just like boring. That's what I like. <laughs> boring, not scary, not spooky booky. Like, I don't want any of that. Yeah. Like, I just want boring. <laughs> like, just happy, sweet, calm, not intimidating, boring. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel that. Yeah. Sometimes you don't need a grand adventure. I'll just read about one instead. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm a wuss and that's what we've learned from Halloween Aganza Ash is a badass and I'm terrified of everything <laughs> badass or a little crazy I don't know it could be both I especially mean, maybe if both. I have like a few glasses of wine and I'm like no they're not gonna come take me I'm gonna come freak them out I mean after a few glasses of wine I also am like it's fine I got this yeah <laughs> magically I'm brave after a few glasses of wine I know isn't that crazy how that works yeah, yeah every time <laughs> so on that note <laughs> thank you all for listening to our second annual Halloween Aganza we are so excited to be back and we're excited for season three. So we're going to be doing a nerd bite in the next few days, which will have some updates on season three of CTN. It's going to just be a catch up session. And, you know, it's been a hot minute since we've just kind of connected with all things crime time nerds. So we are pretty pumped to be doing that. So stay tuned for that in the next few weeks. Mm. Next few days. Uh, in the near future. <laughs> In the near future. <laughs> or, yeah, next few days. Next few days. We got those. Next few days. Until next time, you crime-loving nerdlings. If you want to chat with us more and with other nerdlings, come join the private Facebook group under Crime Time Nerds. The link is in the show notes for folks, but we'd love to have you come hang out with us all. You can also shoot us an email at crimetimenerds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at crimetimenerds. Yeah. Woo! Woo!